This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Our kids have said to us since we moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live. Hello, and welcome to American Muslim Project. I'm Asad Butt. American Muslim Project is a podcast where we share the contributions Muslims are making to American life. In each episode, we elevate unique Muslim voices that are shaping this American experience. Welcome to part two of my conversation with Anan Khan. Just a note, if you haven't heard the first part, we recommend you listen to that one first. Anan Khan is the executive director of Restore Justice, a nonprofit organization he founded while incarcerated. While in prison, he campaigned for the felony murder rule to be amended in California, and in January 2019, he became the first person to be resentenced under the law he helped to change. In part two of my interview with Anan, we talk about the felony murder rule and his work at Restore Justice. I first asked him about the people that he met in prison. Yeah, people are funny. Um, I think I've, I, and I, it's hard for me to articulate this too, because I don't want people to think like prison is a fun place. It's not. Um, and I think humor and fun is survival. Um, so I want everyone, when I say this, to think about survival and maybe some form of peace and something. But I've met funny people and that's how we got by. I met very, very intelligent people uh, into like leadership, mentorship, spirituality, knowledge. Like there are, I'm telling you, man, there are dudes in there that I have met that can go on Jeopardy and go on a street on Jeopardy. Because wow. we'll sit there and, and watch Jeopardy together in the day room. And then there'll be guys just firing off stuff like, like, how do you know about Queen Victoria? Like, how do you know this? <laughs> you know, and, and, sure. you know, and what do you mean? Like the Ottoman Empire uh, took over this and that. And like, how, I mean, you know, and these are people who have and uh, what society calls an eight or have. I mean, literally, uh, like one of the people who I'm telling you can smash on Jeopardy. He has a, a eighth grade level of education once he was arrested. Right. Yeah. So so people will assume a lot of things about dangers and and monsters and maybe even have a visual of what they consider a monster to look like. But the truth is, I have seen more trustworthy people, people who I feel safe around that society fears um, in prison than I have out here. You know, uh, more people who actually care, people who actually care about morality and ethics and, and what's right and what's wrong. Yes, they've committed harm. And many times egregious harm, but also understand why they did it, and then kind of who they are today, and that that we are not handcuffed to our uh, the the worst time in our life. Um, I've met extremely accountable people, right? So a lot of people be like, "Oh, everyone goes to prison and they're just innocent. Everyone's just innocent." And yes, maybe there are there are people who are innocent, but I've actually been around most people who've been, for the most part, like guilty. I, I can't even count on how on one hand how many people claim their innocence. Many people claim the problems being railroaded within the system, right? But not 
not to say they're not accountable for the harm that they actually committed, right? District attorneys will add more and more charges, more and more years, more and more everything and assassinate their character. So that's who I've met in prison. Um, yeah. I still have so many ties to, I, I spent 16 years inside. I grew up inside and I grew up with other people inside. Um, and so I, and the people that are still in there, um, we still talk, we still communicate. They'll call me for that 15 minutes and we'll laugh and joke. And I'll ask them if they need anything. And, you know, um, those ties, those friendships, those bonds um, are still uh, relevant and alive today. Yeah. I read recently that recidivism rates actually declined significantly with age. And so in a sense, lengthy sentences, kind of like the one that you got are, are pretty useless. Um, can you talk about that? I mean, this kind of goes to the sense of the people that you met are, are you know, shouldn't essentially shouldn't be there anymore. Yeah, I mean, I think when um, I think that's a question more of a, like uh, if we were to detach, um, do they belong there anymore? And versus like, what do people need anyways prior to committing harm? And then once a harm is committed, like, is it state violence, meaning incarceration? Is it like, you know, did I need that? Like, did I need uh, 25 to life or 10 years or like, uh, like when we throw out these numbers? Right, like, where are we assessing this number? What are, when we say ten, you go inside for ten years. What, what other assessment is there for that ten years? That hey, in ten years you'll be safe, or it's going to be right now. Looking at you right now, who you are and everything we know about you, what you've done. That uh, fifteen is the right number for you. It, it's just all arbitrary, man. I just want right. to name that first and foremost yeah, sure. because that's not how you address people's needs, right? That you don't address people's needs by a number. Um, so, so it's hard to it's hard to say. Like society loves to, and America loves to put um, a blanket solution. Like because it's such a big problem, that's just one solution for everybody, and that does not work like that. My needs were very specific. My re, my quote unquote rehabilitation, spirituality, um, food, hunger, uh, uh, housing were very specific to me. Um, and yes, there are similarities. So I would I would say that first and foremost. The other part about what, what I think I believe you're asking is. In terms of age, so the, there's recent le there's legislation that passed five to six years that has passed in California. It was actually huge. And for those who want to look into it, uh, look at Senate Bill 260, Senate Bill 261, uh, Assembly Bill 1308. And I know those are just crazy numbers, but I want to name that just so people want if they would yeah. like to research. But the point about the, those bills, especially the first first one was, hey, look, we they, they they went to the legislatures and advocates and brought science with them, saying that a person at the age of 25, there's research one saying that the higher the age, the less likelihood of violence or, or harm or crime or recidivism. Right. That's one thing. But there's flaws in that. But and I'll explain that here in a second, because um, really quick, when we talk about recidivism, the, the two main two or three main reasons why people get rearrested is because of housing and employment. Right. And so so people get out, try to work, don't have places. They get excluded from jobs or there aren't any jobs. People get out, want to live certain places. Those places are very punitive because if there's parole involved, um, they're not there to help you. They're there to put you right back into the system. Uh, so people don't have safe places to live uh, and they don't have places to work. So when we talk about recidivism, we have to talk about that versus a person's personal individual responsibility. Sure. There are, again, systemic factors there. So anyway, going back to the law that, that passed advocates and uh, they brought science with them and they said that people who are 25, the brain, human brain doesn't develop until fully develop until the age of 25. And I remember looking at the map of a brain, like, like kind of like a, a, yeah, a little map of a brain when I learned about this. And what they presented was that your, the front of your brain, the front of your, your brain is um, where the prefrontal cortex is. 
is where the decision-making part of, all, of human, humans live, right? So the thing is that part, the front of your brain develops last when age 25. What develops first is the emotional part. So the back and the middle, back and uh, the, the, the top of your head, not the front, but the top of your head is where, is where um, the emotional part is being developed and is more, is stronger in the brain. So that's why when you see young people are committing harm and violence and, and crime or whatever, uh, and they do it in groups for one, many do it in groups, but they're doing it because of it. Uh, it's not a, it's not an intellectual decision that, that people are making. They're making emotional decisions or emotional choices. And what that really means is that people's urges are driving them. And so then where do urges come from? Again, trauma, uh, uh, right? Pain, uh, abuse, neglect. So we, we have to look at these things. And then by the time a person is 25, 26, and you're sitting in your cell, like, and then one day's like, wow, what happened to my entire life? Like, you know, and I'm not saying it takes a person 25, 26 to reflect. What I'm saying is that by the time a person is 25, that's when the prefrontal cortex, the decision-making part of your brain is developed. And everybody else is incarcerated. I think the average age of incarceration, it fluctuates. It's like 19, 20, 21. Wow. That's the average age. So what that means is think about how young people are getting incarcerated if 19, 20 is the average age, right? 14. I've been, I've been in prison with people who got life sentences at 14, 15, life 16, 17. At 14. Yeah. My wow. friend PJ, he's out now, but he did 20 some years. Um, yeah. Uh, he's 14 years old, got 25 to life, did about 23 my other friend Choi, by the way, he's Laotian and is Muslim. Um, we met in, in Juma services in San Quentin. He's out now too, but he got a, a life sentence at 15. And then because of this law change I just told you about, he was able to go to the parole board. And after 23 years, he's home now. Wow. So um, yeah, literally, actually both of them, both of them are home because of this legislation I just told you about. That's amazing. Can, can you share yeah. the legislation that you advocated for that eventually got you out of prison? Yeah. So when I was uh, incarcerated, I, the felony murder rule, I always knew that in order for me to come home anytime sooner than the 25 to life sentence or die in prison would be if the felon, felony murder rule changed. And a lot of people do when they get to prison, like I myself appealed my case to the courts, to the higher courts and went through that process. It, but even though I did it, I knew that an appeal would not get me out of prison. The reason being is because an appeal generally is if when the courts made an error, a judge or something, you know, and truthfully, like according to the context of the felony murder rule, the intent to commit a robbery, the courts and the jury or the judge, the DA, they didn't make any errors. Like they did everything right within the context of the law. So therefore I knew, yes, I'm going to appeal. Who knows? Maybe I'll get out on, who knows? Who knows? Something may happen and my case gets overturned. But ultimately I knew that it wouldn't be an appeal. The law would have to change. Uh, fast forward, I'm in San Quentin. I meet people, community-based organizers, people coming into the prison. And um, this, this person that's coming in, her name was Alex. She asked me, hey, do you know, how long do you have until you go home? I explained to her the felony murder rule. And I said, the only way for me to go home is if this changes. And she says, let, all right, let, let's, let's do it. Like, let's, let's try to get it changed. And at that time, she was working at Human Rights Watch, which is a, 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 an amazing global um, organization sure, um, yeah. around human rights. Yeah, yeah, human rights issues around the, around the world. And so she was working there. Um, and that's when we started our own nonprofit, which I'm the executive director of today of Restore Justice. And without, she doesn't have a law degree, obviously I don't, but we fundraised, uh, I fundraised from prison, hired a staff from inside, 
just learn the process of the legislative cycle and the legislative bills, who sits on what committee, what legislator, like how do you raise awareness, storytelling. My sister was involved in sharing her story and my story. And it just, you know, I wanna say the stars aligned and after almost two to three three years, I would say of, of from the inception of this idea, uh, the bill passed. And wow. I ended up being the first person, yeah, resentenced uh, under the bill that uh, we created from an organization we created from in prison. Yeah, so after 16 years, by the way, the same judge that sentenced me to 25 to life was a sitting judge still. And she is the one who resentenced me. Oh, that's amazing. And, and uh, yeah. What was her reaction? Well, I, her reaction was stoic. I, I mean, in terms of like, she was just being the judge, right? Um, and I feel like what she did was maybe make trying to, I don't know, I can't speak for her, trying to make up for whatever, I don't know. Yeah. But I will say this, that I sat, I got in the courtroom. Um, I was transferred from prison to the county jail that I did my initial four years in. And honestly, I didn't know what I was there for. I knew the law passed, but I, there was a lot of pushback from law enforcement, district attorneys saying that this is not correct, this law, whatever. So I didn't, there were still people fighting the law, even though it passed. So I didn't expect right. to uh, immediately get relief. So they transferred me in the middle of the night from San Quentin to the county jail. And I'm, I'm, I'm kind of mad and angry. Like, why are you taking me here? I want to refuse the transfer. This is a clerical error. I don't know why they're sending me here. So I walk in the courtroom. Um, in the county jail, I sit down, I turn to my attorney and I asked the attorney, first thing I asked my attorney was, hey, is the victim's family here? And she says, no, the victim's family is not here. And I think I thought, of, I, I know I thought about that because I didn't want to re-victimize or re-harm that family if they were there again. Um, yeah, sure. yeah. Or, or if I had to say something, if the judge asked me something or to postpone this hearing, um, or if they saw me physically, like I just didn't, I was just concerned about that. I didn't want to do that to them. Um, and then she said, no, they're not here. But my, my family, my support system, everybody showed up just to show the judge like, hey, you know, please don't put his resentencing hearing or this, his next hearing too far into the future. Look at all the support he has. That's the only reason they showed up. And I told all them not to come because this was a, a clerical error. Anyways, courtroom's full. I sit down. I asked that question about the victim's family. And then my next question was to the, my attorney was like right before the judge walked in was like, hey, as soon as this hearing or whatever this is over, can you please send me back to um, state prison in San Quentin? I don't want to be here. I remember telling her, I want to go back to my cell in San Quentin and watch the Super Bowl. That's, oh. that's what I told her. I just want to watch. Yeah, I was like, I want to watch the Super Bowl in my cell and I don't want, I can't do it here. Like, please send me back. And it was um, Martin Luther King weekend, right? Martin Luther King was on a Wednesday. This was a Friday. I'm sorry, Monday. This was a Friday. And I was like, please, like, can you send, send me back to state prison after this? She's like, yeah, we'll take care of it. And literally seconds later, in walks this judge, again, same judge that I saw about over a decade and a half ago, who sentenced me to 25 to life. And this is how I recall the rest of it going. She says, okay, Mr. Khan, uh, I looked at the new legislation, the felony murder rule, and I looked at your case. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to resentence you to three years for the robbery. Wow. And it seems like you've done more than five times that amount. And so what I'm going to do is release you today. And I'm like, and I just, all I heard was cries and gasps in the background. Like, yeah. just like, and I wasn't allowed to look back. I, they told me not to. And I just froze, man. And um, yeah, I just, I just froze. Like I heard it, it registered, but it was unbelievable still. Yeah. And then almost like the judge was like, Hey, okay, thank you. And everything is almost over. And then um, my attorney says, Hey, your honor, you didn't mention anything about parole. 
or probation. She says, oh no, I'm not putting him on parole or probation. That's excessive. She says, she looked at my, my family and my friends in the back and she says, he has about an hour or so to get processed out. You may want to get him out of those clothes. And then she looked at me and said, uh, good luck, Mr. Khan. And she like kind of gave me a nod and a, a slight little like nod, maybe a little, little smile. But about a few hours later, um, yeah, actually, I went back to my cell right after that. I was crying in the elevator when I was being, I was handcuffed and taken back to my cell in that jail before I was getting processed. And when I got to the cell, I made my, my prayer. Uh, I, I didn't have a prayer rug. I had a towel and my, that whole towel was drenched. We're going to take a quick break. Up next, Adnan talks about his work with Restore Justice. This podcast is sponsored by Talkspace. May is Mental Health Awareness Month, and Talkspace, the leading virtual therapy provider, is encouraging people to talk it out in therapy. By talking or texting with a supportive, licensed therapist at Talkspace, you'll gain insights, discover truths, and experience breakthroughs that will improve how you live and how you feel. With Talkspace, just answer a few questions online, and you'll be matched with a therapist. And because you'll meet your therapist online, you don't have to take time off work or arrange childcare. You'll meet on your schedule whenever you feel most at ease. Plus, Talkspace works with most major insurers, and most insured members only pay a $25 copay or less. No insurance? No problem. If you want to make progress toward a mentally healthier place, Talkspace is here for you. Now get $80 off your first month with promo code SPACE80 when you go to Talkspace.com. Match with a licensed therapist today at Talkspace.com. Save $80 with code SPACE80 at Talkspace.com. Welcome back to American Muslim Project. My guest today is Adnan Khan, the executive director of Restore Justice, a nonprofit he founded while in prison. I asked him what its focus is right now. Yeah, so our, our like slogan is from proximity to policy. And what we, we believe in is people who are impacted by the system, not, not just limited to, but people who are advocates and impacted by the system um, to mobilize, organize around systemic change, um, whether through legislation or just organizing. And very specifically, our organization, our staff is reflective of uh, people who have both been, for example, I have uh, myself and two of my colleagues, we both, we all did time together. We were all teenagers when we were sentenced to life uh, and we all committed uh, harm, serious harm. After, uh, so my coworker Aziz, by, my, by the way, he's also a Muslim. He was 17 when he got life. I was 18 when I, when I got life. And then Phil, my other coworker was 19 when he got life. And here we are. We're all we all we all did time together. And now we're all out. We also work with our co other coworkers who have lost loved ones to violence and homicide. Oh, wow. So specifically, our work. Yeah. So we work under the organization, and we all believe in accountability. We all believe in restorative practices, transformative justice. That people who have been harmed and people who commit harm can also be the the same people, right? Like when people. If a person has lost a loved one as a child or growing up or has been victimized or abused, and then they commit harm because of that victimization, that doesn't negate them being survivors or victims either. Um, you know, and so as DAs, police, some certain politicians have monopolized again on who a victim or survivor is and who, who, who it's like they approve on who is and who is not, right? So if a police kills someone, they're no longer a victim, right? That family's not considered a victim because the police killed them. Like they don't offer the same you know, as if like if it was maybe a white person. So anyways, I say share that because we collectively are people who have been harmed, people who have done harm and a blend of both. And we organize and mobilize with people like us 
to build power, build community, and then change uh, legislation and change systems. So specifically, again, it's about, um, uh, uh, we focus on life sentences and violence. Like we, we try to reshape that understanding of what violence is, who, you know, and what people need and what's the sure. best approach. Yeah. I, you know, I, I, I don't know how I came about you on Twitter, but I've been following you for the last year or so. And I've got to say that nobody's really kind of opened up my eyes more than you have to like what's going on, not only in the criminal justice world, but in the social justice movement. Um, hmm. And, and I have to say your tweets and comments on the COVID crisis specifically in prisons and jails mm. have been um, really eye-opening to me. And I was wondering if you could really quickly kind of share with us, you know, your thoughts on, on the COVID crisis in prisons and jails. Yeah, that's been such a, um, a heavy thing. I've lost like really close, close friends for, uh, to it. Um, and it was just, it just how it was handled, like not just handled, but I mean, I don't even know where to begin, man. Like, I, I don't know how I quickly can answer this question, but it's still going on, like literally right now, it's still going on. So imagine if you went into a grocery store and you were only restricted to one aisle of a grocery store and you shared that aisle with 60 people and you know everybody here, that COVID's here. And it's not just here, it's running around rampant in this, in this grocery store. It's for sure in this aisle. And they're not even giving you masks or proper uh, uh, medical or, you know, it's just, it's just like you're going to – it's not that incarcerated people are – or uh, if they get COVID, it's like when they get COVID, right? And that yeah. that was a big deal. And I want, also want to say that, again, just like the systemic stuff I talked about in the beginning, that I always try to frame it. We all, our coalition is trying to frame it as like, hey, the reason we have a COVID in prison problem is because we have a mass incarceration problem or, you know, mass, which is mass criminalization problem. And and that that was the thing. So it's not about safety and danger. According to the, the Department of Corrections in California, like they have a whole, according to even their safety risk assessment tool, which I completely disagree with, they have, they can reduce their population by 50% according to their own safety, what do you call that, assessments. And so it, it became political. It wasn't about safety. It wasn't about people's health. It wasn't about, you know, it was about politics. Oh, if we release people, it doesn't make us look good. Or the governor, if we release people, this can blow back on me, right? It, it was just one of those things. And yeah. Um, yeah, so we try to advocate around it. Um, again, I, don't, I have so much to say on that topic, and, and I don't know where to start. Or- <laughs> <laughs> we'll have to do another episode just on on that. My, my final question to you, what can someone like me do to support your work and, and what you're trying to do? Well, I think, I think the uh, – well, if you're saying support our work directly, I mean, we have a website where you can just check out and, and uh, scroll through and see what sticks for you and where, where, where you find interest. Um, there's an email on there as well if you're interested. So it's restorecalcal.org. Um, so you can just check that out. But I think ultimately, if we're just taking a step back away from Restore and specifically us, I think what you're doing now is, one, speaking with impacted people. Um, and then and then kind of like literally what you're doing is spreading the word. And that's the thing. Like when you – and th- I appreciate you mentioning that stuff about Twitter. I just started tweeting literally last March. I know I had an account since I've been out. But I never use Twitter, like hardly ever. Whatever I put on Instagram and Facebook at that time, I'll just slap on Twitter and never go back to uh, to it. But it wasn't until my wife really encouraged me because of the pandemic and the prisons, uh, like just 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 inform people. And that's all she said, like tell people, like, like okay, fine. And I never, you know, uh, I never turned back from Twitter since then, since last March. 
and here we are, right? So I appreciate you saying that, that it resonated with at least someone. Um, <laughs> and that w- yeah, that was the idea. And I think that's the key was just to educate and inform and share. Um, so what can you all do is exactly that. Learn more, learn, learn more about um, why people commit harm r- rather than being angry and, and re- uh, seeking revenge after they do it. And then seek, and then and then also learn and study of what, how is the best and healthiest ways to respond to someone who has committed harm, right? Yeah. That has already been harmed growing up, and that's my thing. Just educate yourself, learn more about people, talk to people who are impacted, and, and that, and then they will guide you on how to advocate better. But first and foremost, you have to be informed. Great, Adnan Khan, thank you so much for joining. Uh, you are welcome back anytime. And uh, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with us on on American Muslim Project. All right. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. My conversation with Anand Khan was recorded in March of 2021. If you want to learn more about his work, check it out at RestoreCal.org. I also recommend that you follow him on Twitter. His handle is Akon1437. We'll have links to that and everything else that we talked about in our show notes. Thanks again for listening to American Muslim Project. Our show today was produced and edited by Mark Inado, Lindsay Gamble, and me, Asad Butt. Simon Hutchinson did our theme music. We'd love for you to share feedback about the show, and you can do that at our website, AmericanMuslimProject.com. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live.